Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Zach Stein, writer, educator, and futurist, working to bring a greater sense of sanity and justice to education. It's good to be here, Jim. Yeah, it's interesting that we haven't connected earlier. Oh, I guess we did actually connect many years ago, but you know, we kind of travel in similar circles online and we know a lot of the same people. So it's really great to have you on the show and be able to get into your work in some depth. Zach studied philosophy and religion at Hampshire College, and this is interesting. Zach is now the third Hampshire College grad I've had on my show. The statistical unlikeliness of that is really unlikely. The first one was Lee Smolin, the physicist. I don't remember who the second one was, but I remember pointing it out that it was statistically unusual to have two. And now we have three. Something's interesting about Hampshire College. After Hampshire College, Zach studied educational neuroscience, human development, and the philosophy of education at Harvard. He's a co-founder of Electica, a not-for-profit dedicated to research-based, justice-oriented reform of large-scale standardized testing in K-12, higher education, and business. He's also on various boards of various early-stage and not-for-profits, got his hands into various things in this area. We're mostly going to talk about Zach's book, Education in a Time Between Worlds. Links to the book and other resources we discussed will, as always, be available on Zach's episode page at jimrutshow.com. Let's start with the title. I usually don't talk about the title much, but the title I thought was evocative, Education in a Time Between Worlds. Could you unpack Time Between Worlds a little bit? Totally. Um yeah, the basic idea, it, I mean, it, it's a few things combined. You know, one of them is just a, actually a very theoretical idea from the field of uh, world systems theory, which is founded by Emmanuel Wallerstein. And he had this notion that there were, within the history of the capitalist world system, these periods when there were hegemonic rollovers, when basically the longtime hegemonic force which dominated the world system goes into decay and there's a kind of period where there's not a clear overarching order to the world system until another one locks in. And so these were world system transformations. And what's interesting is that these actually align uh, historically in terms of the epochs uh, with other models like models from uh, cultural evolution, where you're looking at the movement out of the you know, late pre-modern to the early modern, and then from the early modern to the like mature modern, and then from the mature modern to the post-modern. And there's several different models, including esoteric models from people like Rudolf Steiner, where you're looking at this notion that there are periods when, uh, although we're still on the same earth, uh, we are moving to a different world. Uh, and we are in one of those periods right now. And basically when you're in one of those periods education itself becomes uh, one of the primary vectors uh, of kind of collapsing the new world into into order um, and so that's 
the way I'm kind of framing the educational thinking I'm doing in the book, which is to say, this isn't the thinking I would have been doing back in like the 1950s or 60s, <laughs> uh, let alone the 1890s or something. Like this is the thinking you do when you're literally between worlds, when you are trying to reboot a very basic human infrastructure, um, like a hard reboot. Um, and so obviously you can see how this uh, links into the thinking around game B. And there's other groups that are holding similar notions. So that, that's a little bit about that notion of, of the between worlds. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later. In fact, and I'll just point people to my essay, In Search of the Fifth Attractor, which talks about the fact that the ball is going to fly out of our basin at some point, and we all have a moral duty to make sure it lands in a good basin and not a bad one. And I think we're all on the same mission here, essentially. We're going to start off, again, a little unusually, because you use some terms which may not be generally understood by folks in the wider world. By no means is all my audience the Game B world. There's lots of academics and business people and just regular old folks that listen. One of the things you say is that you see the central importance of education as an aspect of the global metacrisis. Could you unpack the idea of metacrisis a little bit? Totally. So there's a, there's a few ways to think of it, and there's a few different people doing work on it. So I'm going to give my view. Um, you can think of it in a couple of ways. One is that there are many crises. And if you, so for example, uh, there's a, something like an ecological crisis, right? There's something like a geopolitical crisis. There's something like a local political crisis at the level of American democracy. There's something like a crisis in the schools and the healthcare. So like, take your pick. You could characterize the fields as crisis ridden. And that's in part because of the time between worlds notion. But if you take the, all the crises combined, <laughs> you get a superordinate crisis, which is the meta crisis. You could think of that as the potentially being distilled into the generator function behind all of the crises. Why are they all occurring? But you can also think of the meta crisis as specifically educational, which is to say, if you're in the woods and you get lost, that's a crisis. And then if it gets cold and you have to make a fire, that's another crisis if you don't know how to make a fire. Uh, but the meta crisis there is actually your own mind. It's actually the state of your skills and your ability to keep your head on your shoulders. So that's the crisis behind the crisis. And so in a sense, the educational crisis is pivotal within the broader meta crisis because it's the one that gets at the heart of the issue, which is the nature of human choice-making, self-understanding. Uh, and capacity. So when you look at the situation, I'm seeing several things in that light. You're seeing a capabilities crisis, which is to say the, the things we need to figure out how to do, we're not figuring out. I'm going to just jump in and say it's essentially capability versus complexity problem, right? Exactly. We actually have more capability now than we did in 1850, but we're confronting a much more complex world. So it's really a mismatch between exponentially rising complexity and, you know, probably also exponentially rising capability, but rising on a lower exponential. Yeah, that's right. The, we've, we've ended up building a civilization where the, the problems we're confronting have become so complex so quickly that there's a lag in the human capacity upgrade needed to meet them. So that's your classic, that's one classic dimension of the educational crisis as kind of the meta crisis. So you're, 
there's a capability crisis, but there's also a legitimation crisis, right? And this is also a dimension of the educational crisis, which is to say that it's not just that we can't figure stuff out from a capability standpoint, we can't figure out who is the one with the legitimate authority to even say they figured it out, right? So this is touching on the political crisis, but it's even deeper because it's about the legitimacy of authority, period. The lack of social cohesion or social capital, you know, is one of the very strong amplifiers of the meta crisis because obviously it undermines the ability to, you know, organize serious attacks on the meta crisis. I mean, just look at the clown-like response of the United States to the coronavirus, you know, compare and contrast with, say, our response to World War II or the Cuban Missile Crisis. Exactly. And when you're looking at it from the perspective of the schools, that ship sailed a long time ago. There's been an absence of legitimate teacherly authority in the schools and universities for quite a while. And so that is what has produced uh, the more widespread um, sense of illegitimacy across most of our major institutions. Um, so, But then you also have the meaning crisis, which is adjacent to the legitimacy crisis and the capability crisis, uh, which is basically what a lot of what Verveke talks about and others, where it's it's not just there's not legitimate authority and there's problems that are too complex to solve. There's also a sense of we don't know what we're about as a species or a nation or even an individual. What's the meaning of the suffering? What's the meaning of the joy? Um, what's the meaning of death, sleep, dreams? Uh, there's such a dimension of cultural incoherence here. This is part of what the conspiracy theory industrial complex plugs into is the opening, uh, the question mark uh, in the place where there should be actual meaning. Uh, and then the final one's an intelligibility crisis, um, which is to say, uh, and this is different than a capability crisis, because it's not about if we're able to do anything. It's about if we're able to understand anything at the level of like, cognitive sense-making. It's a sense-making crisis, which is also talked about like, by people like Jordan Hall, who's a friend of mine. So those are the four. You've got the sense-making crisis, um, the legitimacy crisis, the meaning crisis, and the capability crisis. And that's all on the what's sometimes called the interiorities of civilization, which is to say these aren't infrastructure failures. They're the condition for the possibility of infrastructure failures. They're not political breakdowns. They're the condition for the possibility of political breakdowns. They're prior to them because they reside within the human psyche and body. Uh, and so they're, they're the within and they're what they need to be grappled with in the dimension of consciousness, learning, human development, education. They're not technical problems. Uh, and uh, so that is why I believe, although education, like, you know, I went to the Harvard Graduate School of Education, which believe me is the uh, low end of the totem pole when it comes to the graduate schools of education at Harvard, right? So the amount of importance that's placed on education, the uh, marginalization of it vis-a-vis um, -vis the law school and the Kennedy School of Government and the God, the business school. These things are funded to the hilt, full rides for PhD students, whereas the graduate school of education students are going into hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loan debt. So there's this question of 
Why, given the primacy condition for the possibility of failures across all external systems or the interior systems, why, if education is so important, has it been so neglected? And actually, at this point, it is being preyed upon by forces seeking to profit from the obvious crisis of capability, legitimacy, meaning uh, predatory student loan lending being the main one, but also the overwhelming push to privatize uh, the schools and make them profit centers in the same way that hospitals were made profit centers. So yeah, that's a little bit more there about just when it comes to the meta crisis, the sharp end of the stick is actually within our own minds. And the educational system has been so poorly managed since about 1972 that we're looking at a potential catastrophic breakdown of intergenerational transmission. It's interesting. I graduated from high school in 1971, and it was a working class high school. My zip code, I later looked up in the demographic data in 1970, 50% of the adults were high school dropouts. About 50% had high school educations and 2% had college degrees. And yet it was a great high school. You know, I had a really good education, went to an elite college, MIT. And I would say I was better prepared than the average fancy suburbanite who I was competing with and even the prep schoolers. And yet, you know, go back to that same high school today and it is really, is really failing for all kinds of reasons. And I've got the sense that somewhere around in the 70s, and you know, we talk in the Game B world, that 1975 was when the ethics of business fundamentally changed, when there were limits on what people would do. And in fact, when Jordan Hall and I first met, I don't know how long, 14 years ago at a board meeting at the Santa Fe Institute, our first conversation was about just that me being almost exactly one generation older than him, I was saying, hey, when I joined the business world, I was fortunate to have worked for some relatively ethical companies, and they would actually talk about what they would or would not do that was legal within their domain, but was they thought wrong. And Jordan said, when he entered the workplace in the mid-90s, the rule had changed to the outer edge of what is permissible in the business world is what is arguably legal, not necessarily right or wrong. And then we both agreed that by the time we were talking in 2008, it had gone another step to what should be done in business is what can you can get away with or where the penalties for getting caught are smaller than the wins, right? Think about Facebook and its violations of its promises. And so, you know, there's, there's sort of a fundamental change that was started to be visible, at least around 1975 in the ethical operating systems of our society. And, you know, culture is built in schools and in families. And so somebody is failing to do their job to build the right kinds of people to operate our society. And this is certainly one of the key parts of the meta crisis. One more bit of definition. It's not really definition. Let's just hop into it and call it substance. One of the things that you call out quite repeatedly in your book is to contrast your ideas uh, around education with what you describe as the reductive human capital theory. It might be useful to define what you mean by the reductive human capital theory and you know, contrast that at the highest possible level with what you think we need. Yeah, so hu- human capital theory is a pretty well-known way of thinking about the way human beings fit into economic reasoning and decision-making. And reductive human capital theory is basically the most kind of simplified 
and crude way of thinking about this. And so the basic idea would be that human beings are like any other kind of capital or commodity. And just like uh, getting a bunch of money allows you to do something, you call it capital. If you get a bunch of skills, uh, it allows you to do things. So you can think of skills residing within humans, right? The interiors I was talking about. You can think of those as a form of capital. And then you can see the educational system as basically a subcomponent of the broader economy with the subfunction of supplying that economy with human capital. And so you reduce the like multifaceted dimensions of intergenerational transmission to one, which is the reproduction of the economic system. Uh, and that's reductive human capital theory. And basically it is, uh, to use Schmachtenberger's language, uh, it's a self-terminating protocol for an educational system. Um, it actually undermines the other aspects of culture, which are the kind of hidden curriculum within the economy that actually allows it to function. And this is something that's been pointed out by uh, Marxists for a while, which is that you, know, you think it's the schools and the Ivy League universities that prepare your workers and CEOs, but it's actually their mothers who aren't paid at all. So the hidden labor of human development, which has long been in the domain of women and long uh, completely unremunerated uh, and long neglected and actually preyed upon. Uh, so it's not, Jim, that the cultural transmission takes place around the tables of the dining room and in the schools, that's the case. But why are the schools and the dinner tables failing? It's because of all the other predatory systems that are increasingly incursion, uh, increasingly uh, colonizing uh, the life world. So that when you're looking at human capital theory and you're thinking, well, where is the human capital actually supplied from? Where do we actually mine it? We mine it in the families first, and then we mine it in the schools. And so you're actually preying upon this necessary dimension of intergenerational transmission and kind of extracting from it this simplified skill and capacity kind of mindset, which ends up um, in the long run undercutting the dinner table and the substance of schooling so that you get people who are, yeah, they have skills, <laughs> but they have no source of motivation. They have no source of creative thinking. They have no ethical compass, as you were saying. So the over-focusing on efficiency of the economy, uh, although it seems like a good idea in the short term, ends up undermining the potential for productivity in the long term because you've uh, destroyed all of the all of the uh, all the intangibles and you've commodified all the stuff that actually shouldn't be commodified. Um, so that's a little bit about the human capital theory, which has been absolutely the predominant way of thinking about education. Like when you think about No Child Left Behind and Obama's uh, Race to the Top and those kinds of models of educational reform, they're absolutely dominated by the human capital uh, mentality. You save the schools to save the economy. Uh, and then similarly, the global educational reform movement, uh, sometimes called GERM, G-E-R-M, <laughs> Gates Foundation, et cetera, into Africa and other places, um, Similarly, uh, you're seeing mostly the nature of the reforms themselves held within this human capital mindset, which again, reduces education to lowest common denominator need to reproduce the 
uh, economic system and end up pushing into the margins and actually kind of like uh, offloading externalities into the other dimensions of intergenerational transmission, which are necessary, like ethical and meaning making and legitimacy. So yeah, that's that's my that's my thinking there. And it is important not to actually blame the schools or the mothers, <laughs> right? When in fact, uh, it is many of the institutions and systems around the household and the school which make it almost impossible to do the right thing within them. And this is a point I make in my book in several places, especially the chapter on social miracles, which is that it's not the schools that need to be reformed. It's the civilization that needs to be reformed in order for us to have schools that we actually want. You know, most of the most well-meaning educational reform projects fail, not because it's impossible to do what they want to do in the schools, but rather because it's impossible to have a school like that in a culture like ours and a society like ours. It's the classic like, well, that would be a great thing to do for kids. That sounds wonderful, but how could they ever get a job? It's like saying, oh, if you, and this is one of Hampshire College's problems, <laughs> if you teach people to value meaningful work and to hate bullshit and to not virtue signal, right? And to not kind of go to the lowest common denominator, profit motive types of incentives, and then you release them into the world to get jobs, where are they going to go? <laughs> right? And so until we change the systems around the educational system, we can't pretend that making changes to the educational systems are really going to do anything. That's a key point. That, I think, is something that the audience should internalize before we go further. Because otherwise, you could say, ah, oh, that's Zach. He's a you know, utopian screwball. That shit won't work. But if you take it in the consideration that we're talking about it as a kind of a two-part motion of education with cultural and institutional reforms, that the two eventually converge into a world where they both make sense, then we have something. I had a very similar experience on Facebook yesterday where I think it was actually Daniel Schmachtenberger posted a question on what would policing of the future look like? And I put up my idea and someone said, that couldn't possibly work. That's the craziest thing I've ever seen, certainly in a world like ours, right? But my response will be, exactly. You know, my idea is about policing. And I come from a police family. My dad was a career police officer. My brother was too, one of my favorite cousins. So I know a fair amount about, you know, the sociology of police from the ground floor. My ideas of how to do a great policing, yeah, they would not work in our current society, but that's the point. There's something wrong with our current society because a good ethical form of policing can't work in the same sense that a good ethical form of education could not work in what we would call in game B talk, you know, advanced game A, you know, the hyper-financialized ratchet of status as consumerism. In fact, I'm going to go off a little bit and respond to your talk about some of your comments about the family structure. And again, throw in a little personal history. You know, my parents lived a you know lower middle class and then gradually sort of a middle middle class. I think the time I graduated from my high school, my father was making exactly the median family income in the United States as a lieutenant in the Washington, D.C. Police Department. And my mother, who's vastly more talented than my father, had chosen not to work for money, but she was very active as a volunteer. You know, she ran the PTA, she ran the babysitting club, and she later got into politics and had eventually extremely large-scale jobs in politics, including delegate to national conventions, you know, being in charge of all the women volunteers in the eastern third of the country in one of the presidential campaigns, but always not for pay. And 
you know, people would sometimes say, Marianne, you know, you could be making the big bucks. She goes, well, you know, I want to, I don't really want to, I don't really care. You know, they, they were happy with who they were. They were not on the status via consumption ratchet that sort of the later generations who had been indoctrinated by, you know, pervasive, psychologically astute TV advertising had drilled into them so that now all the mothers, I mean, you know, my mother, despite having left home when she was 14, could have had a large and lucrative paid career. But to her, family and community and volunteer work was way more satisfying than being able to trade in our often beater used cars for some fancy new car or, you know, our little... 960 square foot house for some big old thing. She just didn't think that stuff was important and neither did my father. And, you know, that's unfortunately been programmed out of most people today, starting, you know, with my generation, the boomers, you know, most of us were pretty damn status as consumerists from the get go. And it had gotten worse since then, though, maybe it's turning around a little bit with the millennials. Surprising number of millennials I've gotten to meet, particularly through local agricultural work that I do, kind of the modern, this time competent, back to the landers, unlike the 1974 crew from Hampshire College, and those involved in radical social change and their friends seem much less in the matrix of status through consumption. So, you know, that may be a sign that there are some opportunities here for us to bring in this better world. Let me jump back to one of the things you said twice. And that is the intergenerational transmission of essential human capacities for reasoning and reflection could fail. And when we talk about what comes next, we hope it's one of the better worlds. But if this truly were to fail in a fundamental fashion, isn't it possible we could have a serious collapse of the fall of Rome sort? Um, that's what's happening. It's not that it could fail. It's that that it is failing. <laughs> and you, you could argue that it has failed and already, and that we're in, and maybe pretty far into uh, collapse dynamics that are at the end of the day traceable to the fundamental breakdown in intergenerational transmission uh, as uh, basically as a result of the colonization of the life world, which is precisely what you described in your you know fascinating reflections on on your mother and the transition uh, into a new generation who became status seeking. And then the transition again with the millennials into a generation who are not status seeking through consumerism. Uh, but that is in part because they are poor. Uh, and that is in part because they did not actually have the opportunities for upward mobility that were provided for the baby boomer generation. And so they've been saddled with student loan debt, student loan debt, which the boomers didn't have. They've been facing a job market, which is saturated by baby boomers at the highest levels who are holding onto jobs 20 years longer than their parents did. And which is to say like, there hasn't actually been a turnover generationally since the boomers took over and they are prolonging that seemingly indefinitely. And there hasn't been a turnover of resources or access to power or wisdom slash knowledge slash capacity. And so that's just a, a striking situation, which is kind of having these ramifications up and into the meta crisis. Uh, so it is happening and the, you know, the result is actually uh, when it starts to set in, um, which is to say when intergenerational transmission truly fails, 
you get a distance between the elders and the youth that is so great. The only result can be strategic relation, which means generational warfare. And there were some Marxists who believed that at the end of the day, class warfare would transform into generational warfare. And there's a, there's reasons to, to see that as actually one of the things that's playing out here when you look at the nature of asset holding and the access to the halls of power that's being hoarded by uh, the boomers. Um, so I think we're actually in a situation where we are approximating generational warfare, and right now the boomers are winning. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, the boomers have had the presidency since 1992, right? Interestingly, Joe Biden is actually a silent. He is not a boomer. He came, he's the very tail end of the generation before the boomers. <laughs> right, but that's even a more extreme example of the dynamic I'm talking about. Yeah, what the fuck, right? Here, you know, in the 60s, you know, being part of the 60s, I was part of a really violent upheaval which I heard fair amount more secondhand than primary because by the time I got to college in 71, the previous four years had been when the radical changes had come. You know, in 1967 at MIT, you know, the dorms were strictly monitored, no girls allowed in the room, you know, no drinking on campus, blah, blah, blah. By 1971, the boomers had routed the silence and the GI Joes and had totally intimidated them. And we basically ran the goddamn place for both better and for worse. I mean, I think it had some negative consequences, but we terrorized the older generation into submission to our demands. And by 1971, our dorm was wide open. You want to have your girlfriend over for the weekend? No problem. You, we had to deal with a local liquor store that would deliver liquor to the front desk. Totally illegal. Oh, well. And the boomers routed the previous generations in an astoundingly binary way between about 1967 and maybe at the latest 1975. Nothing like that has happened at all, right? And we had our first boomer president with Bill Clinton when he was quite young. So maybe the boomers learned from their victory how not to be displaced. We shall see. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually quite uh, striking and disturbing when you think about the the position of the youth vis-a-vis the elders, if it is a purely strategic relationship. Um, and you mentioned that your first conversation with Jordan Hall, you were like, yeah, when I got into the business world, it was actually ethical. But then the thing that remains unsaid is that, and then when my generation took over the business world, it became completely unethical. <laughs> yep. Right. That Which is the generation that actually caused, you know, so it, it's it's a striking thing and and so yeah so we're i think we're in that situation when you look at the educational reform dynamics and the predatory student loaning and the nature student loan market the predatory student loan market and the and the nature of the the uh, deprofessionalization of a lot of the work that's taking place now uh and yeah it's it's hard to see what the youth are going to do in the next decade And so I worry a lot, actually, about um, ways to uh, help to mitigate the most extreme aspects of this educational crisis. Um, And right now, with the nature of the situation with the pandemic, we're actually uh, not in school. Uh, The schools have been shut down. And most of the reports I'm getting from teachers are that it's not working great. <laughs> you know, incidentally, in my book, I suggest that all the schools should have already put in place something like a 
alternative educational hub network, right? That when the buses can't run and the lunches can't be served in the cafeteria, um, is there something like a generator for the educational system that you can shut the physical infrastructure and boot the digital infrastructure? Um, and then have this backup system of a distributed kind of educational hub network. Um, and none of those are actually put in place, even though I had some conversations with school districts suggesting they do it. Um, you know, like in Vermont, there's, you can get a snow week in Vermont, <laughs> you know, cause it dumps whatever, two feet or something. And it's like for those weeks, the kids just simply aren't in school. And so the whole country was basically asked to rapidly transition into a completely distributed digitally facilitated kind of stay at home school system. And uh, it's mostly been an abject failure. Um, although of course there's been pockets of innovation. And so what that means is like, you know, these kids are going to advance to the next grade without actually having finished the previous grade. Or not. I mean, there's some talk that the right thing to do is just have everybody do this last grade over again, which will have all kinds of weird backups in the downstream system, including oh, yeah. a whole lack of a freshman year someplace. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It is interesting that, you know, unfortunately, because we're a society that is reactive and is driven by short-term money-on-money return, we do not invest in robustness. And this is one of the fundamentally deep, broken problems that drives the meta-crisis, and we're, and we're paying for it right now. You know, if we'd had a department of wicked risks, for instance, that could have tracked the rise of the COVID virus, had fully modeled the other viruses, and could have called the play earlier, we could have reduced by trillions of dollars the damage to our economic system. We could have had kids back to school probably by the 1st of May, et cetera. But because of the fact that we invented on the fly only when absolutely needed, we ended up paying way larger costs than we need to on these tail risks. And again, people who don't understand that these kinds of big events are relatively common, so-called tail risk. And the failure to understand that is one of the greatest failings of our epoch. Again, probably driven by education. Even those who are well-educated, PhDs in sociology or business who have had lots of statistics, all they're taught is Gaussian statistics, right? And if you all you know is Gaussian statistics, you'll say extreme events are extremely rare. I still remember being so pissed off during a 2008 crisis. Some senior executive from GE Capital said, we can't be held responsible. This was a 16 Sigma event, meaning it's you know, once in 100 million years. And I go, idiot, only on a Gaussian distribution, any reasonable read of fluctuations in economic social systems would say this is about a one in a hundred year event. Right. So shut the fuck up, asshole. <laughs> right. And who the hell let you be the CEO of, uh, you know, many, many billions of dollars of capital assets? You know, again, it's failure of education into understanding that we live in a complex world and that complex systems thinking is an absolute requisite for those who are going to try to steer our society or even exist in it. In fact, one of the things I did like about your book at first, I was saying, oh, God damn it. This is a guy with a hammer and everything is an education nail. But you could come out and say quite strongly that throughout the book, you're looking at the interdependence between educational organizations, teacherly practice, and the rest of society and culture. And you know, this idea of multiple systems that are coupled in various ways and have extraordinarily complex nonlinear dynamics, I thought was something you could have done a little bit more of in the book, but you clearly are informed by that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, so we've been talking about the schools and that's where most people locate education. And I've been using the term intergenerational transmission to try to kind of signal that there's actually a much deeper way to understand 
this function of education, which makes schools actually a kind of relatively new historical invention. Uh, that's a whole other conversation, but yeah, I'm coming from a complex systems view of societal evolution. And, you know, I mentioned Wallerstein and he pulls on Prigogine and background with the Santa Fe Institute type, you know, Jeffrey West and, um, Irvin Laszlo and other people who've modeled social systems as basically autopoetically reproducing themselves in terms of complex systems dynamics. And so I see intergenerational transmission as basically the autopoetic function of the social system, which means that it doesn't just happen in schools at all. That in fact, if I make a grocery store the way grocery stores have been made, there's a hidden curriculum there. I'm transmitting to the next generation something about what food is. Even though I never mentioned it in school, it's not in the curriculum. Same thing with energy, same thing with water, uh, transportation, et cetera. So there's a, a deeper pattern of intergenerational transmission, which John Dewey noted early that all the institutions and patterns of a society are educative or educational. Um, and so that's actually the definition of education I'm working with, not just schools. In fact, I'm suggesting schools as we've known them are basically obsolete, you know, modern inventions, uh, which were useful at a certain period of time, but that are basically decades past their prime of uh, efficiency for serving the autopoetic regeneration of the social system. So it's important to see that, yeah, if you conceive education that broadly, then you're actually looking at a range of problems which are outside the scope of just educational reform as we've usually discuss it, which means school reform. Uh, the most obvious one is the informational ecology, uh, you know, which has in the last couple of decades just become probably the, the main effect when you're looking at people's uh, capacities and epistemics, uh, you know, their frameworks and their internal working models of who they are and what the world's about. And when you look at adolescent culture right now, in conjunction with everything we've talked about, how the schools are failed in, in part because they're obsolete, in part because they can't handle this exact problem, <laughs> uh, which is how do you stop the kids from getting brainwashed by social media when the freaking adults are brainwashed by social media? <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm amazed that grown professionals with a tremendous amount of other things to do spend time on Facebook when they know that it is uh, built to be addictive and that it is used to transmit micro-targeted advertisements to try to impact you at an emotional level, that it's a extractive model of harvesting your time, attention, and capability for their profit. But we do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to push back on that just a little bit. Okay. When I read some of your, you know, attacks on our information ecosystem, by the way, I do agree that emergently in the majority of actual humans in around, the net result of all this is somewhat surprisingly a reduction in our sense-making capability. However, there are certainly trends that point the other way, Facebook being one, while, you know, open general Facebook is just, a, you know, useless and, as you say, manipulative. You are the product. You're being micro-targeted, etc. On the other hand, Facebook has also developed an ecosystem, or the users really pushed it, which are the so-called groups. 
I would say 90%, at least maybe more now of my time on Facebook is in specialized groups of people who have self-organized in a network-centric fashion to pursue a specific agenda. And some of those agendas are radical social change. In fact, at this point, the core hottest part of the Game B movement is on the Game B group on Facebook. About 2,000 members, people from all kinds of different areas growing exponentially. And I don't even know if there's ads in groups. If they are, they're unobtrusive. And I, I don't know what the hell their algorithms would make out of our Game B conversations on Facebook. And now we have decided that the core group had gotten about two months ago too heavily trafficked. It was too many topics. And so we took one of the affordances of Facebook which they don't even know probably could be used for this. We created a Game B page, the Game B page on Facebook, which then links to so far about 18 additional groups of Game B, Game B branded. So we have Game B community building, Game B parroting, Game B education, Game B communities, etc. And so we have taken the tools available that Facebook created for God knows what reason and have molded them to our own subversive purposes. So that's number one. You know, even though open Facebook is a cesspool, it gets worse by the minute. Twitter's even worse in many ways, unless you're willing to spend a lot of time on curation. But these tools can be used. And the second one, and you mentioned Google as being problematic. And I think back as a nerdy, smart, working class kid who had depleted his school and community libraries of every interesting book on science by the time I was 11. If someone had turned me loose with Google Scholar when I was 12, holy shit, I don't know what would have become of me, but I don't think it would be bad. While the, the temptations to go in useless or worse than useless directions certainly exist, there are amazing things on the internet. You know, the whole MIT curriculum is available, almost all of it available on the internet, as are big parts of other elite colleges. Again, I use Google Scholar many times a day and just visualizing 12-year-old, 13-year-old, nerdy Jim Rutt, you know, following his passion through a thread of scientific articles, you know, is mind-blowing. I would have been a way smarter person way earlier if I'd had access to that tool. So it's not all bad. In fact, there's lots of really good. And one that you slammed a little bit, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, was Khan Academy. Again, when I first stumbled across the Khan Academy, I go, God damn it, I wish I'd had access to that when I was 10 or 11. That would have been amazing. I wouldn't have to listen to these droning, boring people who you know, spent three quarters of each year's math class recapitulating last year's. Why can't we move on, sons of bitches? With the Khan Academy, I could have been teaching myself calculus when I was 13. So there's a lot of good in our information systems. Of course. Yeah. And the overall recommendation of my book is actually to transition out of traditional brick and mortar schools into a, a educational system that has, you know, massively new potentialities as a result of embracing digital technologies. But there's this question of, you know, what is actually educational as opposed to just informational? And informational environments are not necessarily educational environments. Um, and so there's a complex thing that's happened when we think that using digital technology for education means getting kids to stare at screens all day. And that absolutely doesn't need to be the case. And I have some design kind of recommendations in my book for educational technologies that would uh, 
not actually depend upon increased uh, screen usage and isolated, you know, kind of autistic exploration through uncurated informational environments. So that's one factor, which is that, you know, Khan Academy is amazing. I actually think it's an incredible resource, but it is kids staring at screens all day. Um, and that's not what education is at a fundamental level. So the idea that you could roll out a national digital curriculum, which would have kids sitting in front of computer screens for seven hours a day, and that's education. And it's actually better than it used to be because they have access to everything. Super naive, right? Most of education happens in conversation with actual other people in real space and time. And sensory motor development, aesthetic development, ethical development, all of these things outside of the merely cognitive and science, technology, engineering, and math domains, all of those things require real human interpersonal contact. So that's one. Um, two, you know, I'm a Rawlsian. So I actually think in a very principled way about the nature of justice. And justice is about the way basic institutions of society kind of like set the conditions for people to, to work and thrive in. And when you're judging a system, the best way to judge it is actually by taking into account first and foremost, the position of the least well-off. And so of course, 13 year old Jim Rutt would have done great with Google and Google Scholar. And my sense is in fact, you know, even if that Jim Rutt had access to Facebook, he may have been disciplined enough to not go on Facebook or to use Facebook in this really sophisticated way. But <laughs> when you look at what happens to those kids who are not self-directed learners, right, who have trauma or who are uh, in other ways uh, not talented enough to turn an informational ecosystem into an educational ecosystem, you get in a situation where you look at what Facebook does to those people who are just captured by it. Right. So it's like, totally there's a park, beautiful park, right? People sell crack in the park, right? But there are places in the park where you can play basketball. So you're saying basically like, Hey, we can play basketball in this park. And I'm saying, yeah, but there's crack dealers in that park. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm going to steal that. Well, I'll give credit, but that's a perfect example of Facebook. It's a nice park. There's picnic tables. You can have take your family because you know a lot of people use Facebook mostly to communicate with their family, particularly boomers, right? And so it's good. But oh yeah, there's crack dealers and there's hypnotists that will turn you into a sex criminal and all kinds of weird shit out there. No, and it's and what I'm saying is like I what most people do on Facebook is actually open question, right? Like show us the data of Facebook. <laughs> what are people doing? Like the advertisers know what most people do on Facebook, but it's not clear to me what is actually going on there. We know it drives depression. We know it drives addiction. We know it drives conspiracy theories. Um, we know it drives lowering self-esteem in adolescence and cyberbullying and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I'm not saying like, oh, it's a nice park and the drug dealers are hiding there. I'm saying it's a park where drugs are dealt. There are places in it where it's maybe safe. But in order to get to those places, you have to walk through the places where it's filled with drug dealers. Um, and it's by design. Like Facebook brought in people with an expertise and addiction to help them think about design features, not to make them not addictive. <laughs> you know, the same way that fast food companies put chemicals to basically make flavors that are radically addictive. Um, uh, and so this is by design that it's capturing attention, completely distracting and destroying the epistemics of the youth and some of the adults, many of the adults. 
Yeah, we've talked about this on the show quite a bit. In fact, just recently, I did an episode with Stephen Levy, who wrote a book about Facebook, and he gets into a lot of this. And my friend Tristan Harris was on the show, and I think his group, Humane Tech, is doing some of the very best work at theorizing and capturing to the, to the degree they can. As you point out, the inner data is not available, but there's a fair amount of scientific research that's been published on Facebook on how people are using it and what it's actually doing to us and some of those dimensions you talked about. You know, Teenage depression, teenage suicide may well be causally linked. The really big turnup is suspiciously well correlated with the introduction of the smartphone and the proliferation of Facebook as the default meeting ground for teens in you know the 2010 timeframe. I'm going to pivot here now a little bit to what I took away as maybe the central theme of your book, which, to use your words, the importance of re-theorizing teacherly authority and responsibility in contemporary educational configurations. And this struck me as being very relevant to the discussion about Google Scholar or Google itself or Wikipedia as a resource, but without having something like teacherly authority to help guide and error correct and form the broader contexts. And indeed, something would be quite lacking in the you know sort of self-configuration that some people might, even the 13-year-old Jim Rutt, uh, would have failed to do if they didn't have excellent teacherly authority in some form. So I'd love to have you riff on that. One, let me know if if you think that's close to your theme. And second, riff pretty deeply on what a really good new modern form of distributed teacherly authority might look like. Yeah, so teacherly authority. Yeah, it is at the at the root of the theorizing I do in the book. And it's actually at the root of resolving the educational crisis and therefore the meta crisis is something like the reestablishing of a, of a new kind of teacherly, a new kind of teacherly authority. And what's interesting is that, you know, you actually don't get anything like human culture without teacherly authority. And I've, you know, made some arguments based on the work of uh, Michael Tomasello, um, who was at the Max Planck Institute for a while as a comparative psychologist looking at the differences between primates and humans in particular. And although he doesn't put it in these terms, uh, this is actually definitely the conclusion of his work, which is something like there's a species-specific trait to the human, uh, to Homo sapiens sapiens, uh, and that species-specific trait, which is the real differentiator, because there's so much that we share with monkeys and other primates, and then even things like whales, and that it's actually this teacherly authority, that it's a specific kind of intergenerational transmission, which is facilitated by joint attentional awareness. Um, so that's to say, you and me engaging with something in a context where you have greater knowledge and capacity and I have less, and we both know I'm trying to learn from you. Uh, This is the kind of like species-specific, kind of like anthropologically deep-seated, kind of like archetype of teaching and learning. And, you know, people have argued with Michael Tomasello, well, no, it's very clear, like monkeys teach other monkeys. And it's like, yeah, that's their, their, you know, the mother monkey will put the stick in the anthill and bring out ants and then leave the stick there. And then the kid will try it. 
But there's nothing like the complexity and abstraction of joint attention that you get even in the simplest interaction with a toddler. So just a simple example is that monkeys don't point. And, uh, you know, he did a lot of research on this in the, you know, like 20 years ago, and I'm sure other people have followed up and there may be some complexity, but, you know, if I point to at something most or look carefully, most young humans will follow my point. Um, and dogs follow points because they've been evolved with us, but in nature, spontaneously, monkeys don't point for other monkeys to follow. And this is something about joint attention. And it's something about, again, the, the things that set humans apart and allow for the kinds of civilizations that we have, where do those reside? They reside in this dynamic of teacherly authority in the, in the level and sophistication of intergenerational and cultural transmission that we can facilitate. And so what I'm saying with all of that is basically that when I say teacherly authority, don't think like teacher in a school. Don't think that at all. <laughs> like that's, we think teaching and education, we put them in schools, but that's this modern bias. In fact, teacherly authority is a deeply rooted aspect of what it means to be human. And we've had structures, both formal and informal of teacherly authority in play for as long as we've been human. And in fact, as soon as we started putting them in play is when you could say, oh, okay, human. <laughs> and so they work as I described. And the, you know, teaching a child to tie a shoe is an interesting example, but you can do any number of them. You have an asymmetry of knowledge and capacity. You also tend to have an asymmetry of power, but a relationship is entered into nonetheless, where the person on the plus side of that asymmetry, which is say the smarter, more powerful person, they are taking the best interests in mind of the younger person with a, with a, with an intention to engage in teaching and vice versa that the student, the role of the student also has to be, you have to know that you're in that situation. Um, so I'm not talking about tacit learning and mere imitation where you pick up things by being around someone. That's not teacherly authority. Teacherly authority is an explicit relationship, a kind of uh, social role dynamic. And it hinges upon the perceived legitimacy of the relationship, right? So if I claim to have an asymmetry of knowledge and power, but in fact, I only have an asymmetry of power, then I have pseudo teacherly authority, which has been the big problem lately, um, where I have actual asymmetry of knowledge. Um, then you can actually have something like legitimate teacherly authority because we've been in state-run institutionalized schools where teachers have teacherly authority by virtue of power differential and maybe sometimes knowledge differential, but definitely by virtue of power differential. Uh, then you lay the groundwork for slowly undermining the ability to perceive legitimate teacherly authority. And so this is what's important. When people talk about, you know, a working group coming together and it's a bunch of people with different capacities and then a spontaneous hierarchy emerges within the group. It's not a bureaucracy. It's not a bureaucratic hierarchy. It's a hierarchy of competence and skill. Um, and we all want to be in those kinds of situations, but that relies upon the ability of people to perceive actual differences in capacity and fall into line in terms of the dynamics of teacherly authority. Um, and so for example, um, right now I'm kind of 
holding forth with teacherly authority about teacherly authority. <laughs> How meta? How meta? <laughs> but when I when I go to the auto mechanic and he is telling me about this problem with my car and I'm asking him questions like, well, how does that actually work? And then the auto mechanic is on the upgradient of the capacity differential. He is exercising teacherly authority over me, right? And so it's not that it's like one person's always in a position of teacherly authority. That's super pathological. It's actually these very flexible um, and dynamically shifting structures. And, and it's the ability to basically create containers. And this is what the, was the, is the notion of a school, right? And, and the notion of um, a place in society where education takes place in particular, create these containers where legitimate teacherly authority can be most easily recognized and harnessed and where the student and the teacher are able to fall into the dynamics of trust and interaction uh, that are required. So, and there's more to say. So you can look also as a developmental psychologist, uh, which I've, that's like my formal training. You can look at those capacity differentials that lay the groundwork for teacherly authority and can look at them very specifically, you know, um, and it's most clear in early childhood, uh, but even in adulthood, with high order conceptual frameworks and, and capacity acquisition, it's possible to, to mark the learning sequences that unfold in these different domains and see where, just how much more knowledge does that person have, right? <laughs> like how legitimate is that teacherly authority? Is it just that they have a novel way of speaking and they're charismatic, or is it that there's actually really a knowledge and capacity differential? And so those kinds of discernments, which need to be made on the part of the student and the teacher, if they're honest and self-reflective, those things need to be uh, revealed and thematized and felt. Uh, so I mentioned the problem with teacherly authority being based solely on bureaucratic power, but there's also this problem, which is more novel, which is teacherly authority being based on something like the popularity of a platform or the uh, number of likes or views um, or celebrity status. So I'm talking about the transformation of teacherly authority in the context of the digital information ecologies. And this is kind of what in the last couple of decades has actually brought what was already an educational crisis to a head, which is that the water has become so muddy in terms of how to detect legitimate teacherly authority that now we don't even know it when we see it. And when we do see it, there's often a knee-jerk reaction to destroy it. Um, that teacherly authority is um, not wanted. And so now we're back to the, the legitimation or legitimacy crisis, which is to say, if you land in an institutional situation where you've undercut teacherly authority in the places it needs to be able to show up and be detected, then you've undercut the ability for intergenerational transmission. And if that goes long enough, then even when you come forward as a legitimate teacher, there's no one who will assume the role of student. And some of this has had to do with kind of the, the way that schooling and family structures and other things have been preyed upon so that much, and back to the education, reductive human capital theory, that, you know, too often people understand intergenerational transmission strategically, which doesn't require entering into an actual uh, 
relationship of teacherly authority. So for example, if I go to a college like, and I pay money to go to the college, I'm actually taking out as much as a house. I'm like taking a mortgage out as an 18 year old in order to go to college. Uh, and I'm making that decision strategically um, because I want to go to the college that's going to give me the biggest return on that investment in terms of future earnings, right? So this is human capital theory. So then I'm sitting in the classroom and I'm super aware that like every hour I'm in this classroom costs this much money uh, because I'm aware of that. I took out $40,000 or whatever, probably even more to be sitting there. And then the teacher starts challenging me and the teacher starts saying things that I do disagree with, right? And the teacher starts inviting uh, guest lecturers that say things that uh, I don't want to hear that bother my identity, right? So now you're in a situation where student as consumer disrupts the ability to be student as learner, disrupts the ability of student to actually get in a relationship of teacherly authority. So what I'm saying is that, and this is my notion of the education commodity proposition, that you know consumers are always right, the customer's always right. <laughs> uh, students want to be proven wrong. So for as long as we hold educational interactions and intergenerational transmission in the frame, of commodity exchange and strategic intergenerational relationship for return on investment of education, uh, then we actually have really made quite fragile and delicate where does teacherly authority actually arise in those contexts, right? It's like in the back rooms. It's like the random, uh, you know, fortuitous um, student-teacher relationship that emerges. It's not systematic. The system, what's systematic in the system is this strategic relation between generations, almost as a form of commodity exchange. And so similarly, it's like, you know, a lot of teacherly authority resides with the mother. If I knew that my mom was my mom because she was getting paid by the state, let's say, right, this has been recommended, like your mom didn't get paid to take care of you when you were little Jim Rutt. Now, should the state have paid her to do that um, and then actually monitored her behavior and paid her more if she was like a quote good mom right ah fuck that right that's what i'm saying so it's like <laughs> that actually would be the most devastating undermining of intergenerational transmission you could imagine because it would undermine the intergenerational transmission of love right there's this question of, okay my mom's nice to me why is my mom nice to me because she loves me but then in the back of your mind there'd be this Oh no, she's actually being nice to me because she's virtue signaling to the monitors who will pay her more, right? And so you have to understand how much we are approximating this kind of situation in many institutional contexts where intergenerational transmission takes place. Um, and uh, the undermining, again, just to reiterate, the undermining of teacherly authority um, has ramifications out into all of the other aspects of our institutional structures. Um, and there's no way, for example, to get out of the political crisis we're in right now, like with the Congress and the Senate and the president and the voting and all of that stuff, if you want to call that politics, that whole situation hinges on this notion of legitimate teacherly authority. Um, the whole problem with the informational ecosystem with the kind of fake news and alternative facts and conspiracies. And then also like the blue church kind of like homogenized kind of like, um, New York times, uh, all of that is in question because teacherly authority itself is in question. So that, yeah, we have to find a way to get into a position where we can first recognize this problem and then 
create new contexts in which actual teacherly authority can reemerge. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that is the heart of your book that I took away from it, that, you know, as we move the world towards a better and new social operating system, a nuanced and distributed and non-dogmatic form of teacherly authority broadly construed, and that's, and you, you make that point several times, not somebody standing in front of 30 kids tapping on their desk with their ruler is going to be absolutely essential to make this not only an intergenerational transfer, but because we're living in a world where there's a demand for exponential increase in capacity, it has to be an intergenerational upgrade between each generation, which makes the problem even more difficult. Now, if you don't mind, I got a few things I wanted to hit on that these comments brought forth. One, the tight linkage between teacherly authority and parenting. You mention it in places in the book, but I didn't find that you developed it in a really rich fashion. And you could probably say more about that. I'll give you a chance to do that in a bit. And you mentioned the criticality of mothers. No doubt in my mind, the most influential person in my life was my mother. She was a great person in her own way. We grew up in a house without electricity or indoor plumbing, left home when she was 14, made her way to DC when she was 16 saved up nickels, dimes, and quarters from being a waitress. But she was a great person in her own way, and I would not be who I was without her. And, you know, the fact that she was able to eschew status through stuff was what allowed her to do that. And all three of her kids, got to say, we all had great lives, been really solid citizens, been very successful in our own very different domains. And basically because we had that great experience that I can also point out, and again, another anecdotal story from my wife. She taught Head Start for a year. And part of Head Start was doing family visits. And so they visited the families of all the students. At the end of the year, she quit for two reasons. One, during the time she was working at Head Start, she read the research, which showed that Head Start didn't stick. And then the family visits told her that, sorry, these families are so dysfunctional. A couple of years worth of Head Start is not going to make much of a difference. And so parenting and you know, capacity in the family has got to be intimately crafted as part of this social operating system of teacherly authority. My next point is, and you point this out specifically in your book, that there are trends of so-called hyper-progressive reforms like unschooling or what I'm familiar with, raw learning or makerspace-based learning, learning by imitation essentially, where the teacherly authority is very much downplayed. And while I think some of that is good, I'm with you that you know, as a full way to educate the next generation and do that intergenerational upgrade of capacity, that does not strike me as likely to be successful. And third, the one you, in your nice discussion there, pointed to this undermining of all authority and particularly teacherly authority and parental authority. And there are a lot of crazy ass fucking theories running around about parental authority, right? There are actually people who would advocate what we both laughed at. I think I went beyond laughing, you know, the idea of paying the mother and having social workers come in and assess her once a quarter and giving her a grade, give her a bonus. I mean, what the fuck, right? But there are people advocating that. And it strikes me that an awful lot of that rot comes from the capture of a fair amount of our academia, particularly in education departments, by what I call 
postmodernists, people who have lost their way in thinking about reality and have kind of generated these bizarre theories within theories that just are not practical, that have no real traction with the real world. And particularly in education schools, those things have made considerable progress and have led to some really pretty crazy shit. I can give you one personal experience. I was After I stepped down as chairman of SFI, moved back to Virginia, started living at my farm again, I took on a gig as a consultant to a major research university, which will remain unnamed, who wanted to establish a PhD, cross-disciplinary PhD program in cognitive science. They had one of the top undergraduate psychology programs in the country, and they wanted to upgrade it to a PhD program. And so I helped them for quite a while. And we found tremendous support from all the other schools, from medical school, nursing school, engineering school for their computer science department, even the business school. But when we went to call on the dean of the School of Education and the department heads of a couple of the sub-departments, it was like we were like aliens from Uranus coming here to sell them some kind of crazy shit. And what we were trying to sell was, I would say, state-of-the-art cognitive neuroscience and cognitive science. And we looked at the courses they were offering and things like educational psychology. And we were all saying, this is 50-year-old stuff. And some of it wouldn't even have been considered good psychology 50 years ago. And you know, I didn't know it at the time, but the other folks that were more knowledgeable than I about the politics of education, you know, again, they pointed to the fact that you know, that particular school had been taken over by postmodernists and therefore had descended into a maelstrom of nonsense and that we should not waste our time talking to them. And we didn't. So anyway, that's a number of reactions. I'd like to get your reactions to my reactions. (laughs) There's a lot there. So, I mean, the postmodernists took over a lot of the university system and especially those departments that were, again, kind of least well off. Um, you know, education as a field uh, has been on the defensive basically since it began. And the trend has been scientific experts who are men come in and tell women who have 30 years of experience with young children that they're doing it wrong and there's a more scientific way for them to do it. And if you look at the history of the IQ testing movement, which is intimately tied to the eugenics movement, which is intimately all tied to the birth of our large-scale public education systems in the United States as part of the urbanization and immigration that was occurring, uh, you know, this is just pre-World War I. Um, you're looking at a unconscionable intervention into the life world with a ostensibly but mostly bullshit scientific instrument running roughshod uh, over the dynamics of teacherly authority. And so it's not a surprise to me that as postmodernism emerged, it took up residence most rootedly in certain graduate schools of education because you know, postmodernism began as a set of extremely valid criticisms against what was a hyper-omniscient and reductive form of modernism. And the question of, you know, how a critique that was simply deconstructive could ever be transformed into something that was reconstructive remains open. So I guess I'm, you know, and I encountered this myself. So I was in the, in the head teaching fellow briefly of a 
mind, brain, and education department at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. It was founded by my advisor, Kurt Fisher, who actually recently just passed away, one of the most brilliant developmental psychologists um, ever. Uh, but it was the first program of its kind, which was a program in a graduate school of education, integrating cognitive science, neuroscience, uh, and pedagogics, basically education. And there was tremendous resistance, tremendous in part, and I came to detect it as part of this narrative I was just telling, in part, it was a fear. It was a fear that we would, based on the latest trendy scientific findings about the brain, uh, override decades of intuitive, tacit knowledge accumulated by underpaid teachers, right? That we would, and this has happened. This is in part what the field of educational neuroscience uh, turned into in certain uh, areas. It, it it turned into brain-based education, which was using scientific findings that were specious and would be overturned within a year, <laughs> using them to think about rebooting whole curriculums, right? Which is foolish. It's completely foolish. Uh, education is not a technical problem. So science only gets you so far. And the uh, aversion many teachers have and of course, the postmodernists in particular give them kind of like some ammunition to to reify these arguments, I think, more than they should. Uh, the resistance comes from that long history of education being basically the least well-off of the institutions. So yeah, so that's some of the way I think it, it makes sense to read that situation. And then there's that question of, well, why is education the least well off, given that it's so freaking important, right? And this is a really interesting question. And when you look, especially at the history of educational reform in the United States, you're seeing the public education systems, uh, and that means the teachers within them, right, who are, have always been and remain, although a little bit less so predominantly women, who are underpaid given their skill capacity. These educational systems have been the hobby horse of the uh, industrial elite philanthropic classes. And that then needs to be noted as well when you're looking at, well, why did the postmodernists <laughs> take over the education department? It's because the educationists got the most screwed by the kind of overt reductionistic human capital theory, modernist views of education. So that is unfortunate, but unless there's a major change in the way we understand the value of education and we actually make education something more like being a lawyer or a doctor <laughs> or a CEO, uh, unless we do that, there's, there's no way to resuscitate the, the degree of teacherly authority that's needed to right the ship at this point. Though wouldn't your theory say rather than a doctor type teacher, I thought you were talking about the idea of spreading teacherly authority much more widely, you know, into the hands of the the local expert in why who also puts on his teacherly authority hat to teach the aspiring 14-year-old a little bit of rudimentary thermodynamics. Totally. Or the mother who puts on the teacherly authority hat to say, here's how you do ethical reasoning, etc. And maybe there's not a need for a doctor-like person, at least in the lives of... Yeah, I wasn't suggesting that they are understood uh, as having a kind of like special class of expertise. I was, I was suggesting that they, that it's perceived as a social good. I see. 
that there's a prestige associated with being good at conducting intergenerational transmission, right? It doesn't mean you need to be uh, remunerated the way we remunerate, you know, brain surgeons or whatever. Um, but it does mean that there is uh, a shift in cultural perception about the value of what's taking place in these spaces that needs to, that needs to happen because they've been spaces that have been subject to capture um, by forces that have not educational interest in mind. But again, these reframings of the full spectrum of what education needs to be in terms of this reductive human capital, uh, limiting it. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's kind of there. Like the state of graduate schools of education is bad and they have been taken over by postmodernists, but that's because <laughs> they've been in this position of, uh, the least well off, you know? Yeah. They went from the fire to the fire pan. They were, you know, incompetent social engineers. And then they went to just utter insane nonsense, right? Hardly progress, but it's understandable. Yeah. It's funny. Cause it's like the teachers aren't incompetent social engineers. It's, it's the people who came in thinking they knew better than the teachers <laughs> yep. and thinking specifically, and in a sense, they did know better than the teachers about how to make the school system reproduce human capital but they didn't know better than the teachers about how to have the school system reproduce human beings that can actually perpetuate a civilization uh, in perpetuity. So that's the one. And then the, I'm remembering the parenting one. What was the... So yeah, one in the middle was the tendency among some people who consider themselves educational progressives to move towards unschooling or raw learning or maker-based learning that's basically imitative. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely in the kind of like unschooling movement. Like my book is... I'm resuscitating Ivan Illich's arguments about de-schooling society. Um, but I'm doing that in the interest of teacherly authority, not as a protest against it. I'm basically saying that because the schools have run the way that they've run for so long, it's going to be very hard to create the conditions conducive to teacherly authority in those contexts because it's like as soon as a kid walks into the school, if he's a reflective adolescent, if he's not trying to be strategic and get into college and he's just being honest about what's going on in the school, it's what Graeber would call a bullshit job, right? What goes on in the school is you're doing busy work, <laughs> right? You're mostly could take the learning that you're getting and do it in a couple hours a day, but you're there for six hours a day. Um, and the projects are all abstract. Uh, the projects aren't having you use your skills to help the community around you. They're you having to use your skills to get yourself promoted, to get into a college, to maybe eventually get a job, which then you can help the community, right? So there's this postponing of meaningful work. Um, and that's one of, again, the other things that undermines teacherly authority. So I'm in favor of dismantling the schools, creating something like an educational hub network in which there's distributed teacherly authority, but that requires contexts in which teacherly authority can appear and that means contexts where younger people and older people are engaged with actual meaningful problems together, where both have an interest in solving the problem. So no more bullshit in the schools. There's so much work to do. There's so many problems to solve that it's ridiculous we're having kids take tests that have no relationship to the world when we could them have them in apprentice-like relationships in kind of neo-guild-like structures where as soon as they're able to, they're helping the community under the guidance of more knowledgeable elders, building skill and also contributing. Um, and so 
maker spaces and radically kind of like de-authoritarian or anti-authoritarian homeschooling and things like that um, are reactive. They're not going to help us in the long run, but they are kind of pockets like temporary autonomous zones in the educational space where you can get in and actually do amazing things because in those contexts, spontaneous, legitimate teacherly authority can arise where it's actually disincentivized from arising in schools often. It's another, it's another conversation about how scripted some curriculums actually are and how the standardized testing infrastructures in particular make it so that were legitimate teacherly authority to arise, <laughs> it would be seen as suspect and maybe potentially undermining uh, the kind of uh, metrics by which the school is is gauged. But in these autonomous areas where education is occurring much more spontaneously, there still can happen. But if we start to design for it to happen, and again, think about ways to create context where real, legitimate, meaningful teacherly authority can arise, then we're in a different situation. So I do think that, uh, you know, so think about it. It's like, if you watch Fox News, then anytime you see something on CNN or the New York Times, you're not going to buy it. You're not going to buy into the teacherly authority of the New York Times simply because it's the New York Times and vice versa. So if you're a kid and you've learned over the course of grade school and maybe up into middle school that these teachers aren't really all they're cracked up to be and I don't understand why I have to learn this instead of that. And you know, you're basically seeing through some of the illusion of school. Um, and then you, in a school, encounter a teacher who's legit. You're going to discount them simply by virtue of the fact that they're in a school, right? So I, I really think that we've gone quite far down a trajectory that has undermined teacherly authority in the schools. And I blame the standardized tests primarily because everyone knows that the interest of the teacher is actually to get the kids to do well on the tests. Um, even if he, she loves the kids, <laughs> right? And there's this potential and she's super smart and there's a potential for real authentic teacherly authority to emerge. Uh, at the end of the day, the overarching motivation of the school and everyone in it is to pass tests that have a very specific content and a very specific assessment type of modality. Um, and again, that's highly unnatural from the perspective of intergenerational transmission. Whereas if you're an apprenticeship model and you're concretely working every day on the problems together that you both care about, you don't need a standardized test at the end. <laughs> every day there's multiple assessment uh, instances, there's multiple ins assessment engagements and conversations and learning that's taking place. So that's, that's a little bit on that. And then, yeah, parenting is in a sense the other place where education has been kind of relegated to in the modern world, right? So we think of like the schools and we think of the home. Uh, and these are the places that are like saddled with the burden of accomplishing democracy, right? And so blame the teachers, blame the moms <laughs> if you want to figure out uh, what's wrong. But what you have to understand about the breakdown of family structures is that it's not a moral failing. It's at the level of the individuals in the family. It's a moral failing at the level of the society, which allows a society to exist with this much, for example, inequitable distribution of wealth, right? Um, so the question of why your wife, when she went in to the Head Start home visits, why those families were so dysfunctional, it's a macroeconomic question. What immediately confronts you is a psychological and sociological question, 
questions about attachment theory, questions about trauma and things of that nature. But if you pull out <laughs> and look for the generator function of families like that, it's not in uh, moral failing of the individual, it's in the moral failing of the society. Um, and so again, I hugely support uh, the notion that the family is actually at the core of civilizational redesign, but that is the most dangerous thing to say as well. And so here's what I'm basically getting at, which is that the insight that the family is so important is what leads to the insanity of wanting social workers to monitor every mother and wanting there to be parenting licenses and parenting mandatory parenting curriculum and these kinds of things. But that's the most Orwellian shit show you can possibly imagine if you have a civilization that's micromanaging familial life, right? The need to micromanage familial life only takes place if the environments in which families grow are devoid of nutrients, right? Which is to say, like, if you plant a family in a cultural and social context where normal, healthy human interaction isn't possible, <laughs> then you have to go in and try to force them to do that. If you could create enough, and then back to my social miracles chapter, if you could create enough surrounding the family, um, then you could actually ask people to step into the responsibility of being in a family. Um, instead, what you're doing is asking people to step into the responsibility of contributing to the economy. And then the family takes on the externalities of that, right? The family is one of the places and actually literally the minds and the brains of the youth are part of the places where we actually deposit the externalities of our current social system. And so until we flip that, then there's, there's no use in actually kind of like lamenting the state of parenting and getting angry at irresponsible parents and all of that stuff. And that's usually stuff that's said by like middle-class white people, you know, like it's when you really look at the situation with the families, you have to look first and foremost at what the hell is the economics around this family. And, you know, in Vermont, like you've got generational rural poverty, generational rural poverty, which has to do with a lot of things like agricultural subsidies and changes and manufacturing uh, locations and all of that stuff, probably similar to rural Virginia. And what you have are families in situations that are basically, it's extremely difficult to, to understand how these, how these folks actually get by, let alone how they manage to have loving conversations around dinner tables reliably. And, you know, there is some sense that those are the same people who are also, you know, voting for uh, Trump and who are also uh, not believing in climate change and who are, you know, so there's this like cluster of things which are occurring, which we like to read as almost like there's the moral failings of these people. And similar to the way when a child struggles in school, uh, we blame the child. And, and eventually we blame their brain and we give them ADHD medication, right? It never occurs to us to blame the school when the child fails. <laughs> uh, it's certainly it's certainly the last place I would put attention is on the child's nervous system. Uh, the first thing I would look at is the context in which the child is trying to do the work. Um, and so similarly with the, with the need to think about how to help families and how to kind of like revivify the the virtue and value of family life. And I think for the sake of intergenerational transmission and true teacherly authority and just like sanity, 
same argument as education reform, right? Don't focus on the school. Don't focus on the family. Focus on what is surrounding it. Focusing on all the things that use the family to offload externalities, that use the family as a point of extraction and rent-seeking. Um, the family's preyed upon, um, and yet we blame the family for the breakdown of family values. And so, yeah, that's some of my view, and it's similar. It's like, I don't blame the schools for the failure of democracy. <laughs> uh, and they're, they're a, a huge potential scapegoat. Teachers in particular are huge potential scapegoats. When everyone pointing fingers at them should actually be pointing fingers at themselves, usually business leaders, et cetera. Yeah, so that's a little bit more on your reactions, me. Yeah, I'd say that fits into what we talked about earlier about the complex coupled systems nature of the problem. There is no one point fix in a complex system, typically, right? And at least our game B theory is we have to co-evolve our institutions and our people together, more or less, over probably two or three generations to solve these problems. No silver bullets, right? Unfortunately. We're getting kind of far into our time here, and as we discussed prior to showtime, we're going to do a second episode, probably in a month or two, and hit the other half of my topic notes. Zach's book is so rich. I just recommend you should read it. There's no way we could do it justice in one 90-minute session. But one last topic, and I think this is one that a lot of people will find interesting and scary and controversial and lots of other things. Before we wrap up today, you write very passionately about the pharmacologicalization of K through 12 education, and particularly this proliferation of ADHD and similar diagnoses, particularly for boys in the K to 12 system and the attempts to douse them with various chemicals. And that is being a canary in the coal mine, at least, and maybe even more than that. So why don't you talk a little bit about the pharmacalization and medicalization of K to 12 education? Totally. And this is, of course, very uh, controversial topic, right? When I've spoken about ADHD medication, ADD, the rapid, not quite exponential, but probably now with the pandemic, approaching exponential growth rates of psychotropic drug prescription to children. When I speak about these things, I often get a lot of pushback. It's interesting. And the pushbacks on multiple levels. Some of it comes from confusion about uh, the nature of what a disease entity is and the nature of how the brain works and how these drugs actually act on the nervous system. But some of it comes from the perceived dire situation of many young people within the schools and the perception that failing in the schools ends up having ramifications for the rest of your life. So what this means is that those people who will probably react to what I'm going to unfold here, I have tremendous sympathy, in fact, for just how dire the situation is for many young boys in schools and understand the, the kind of almost overwhelming sense of obligation one has as a parent, sometimes as a teacher or administrator, to try to help those kids like whatever it takes. And... What I'm trying to do when I speak about these things is provide a language that can be used to kind of make better sense of what the decision is we're actually making when we decide to put a child on a psychotropic drug to positively impact educational performance. Um, 
And so you mentioned it, and this is what it comes down, the, the medicalization of academic underperformance is the issue, right? So the medicalization of academic underperformance turns uh, the dynamic of teacherly authority almost necessarily into a strategic one. And it ends up undermining a whole bunch of the conditions for the possibility of certain forms of identity formation and certain forms of intergenerational transmission. Um, so I'm actually not going to talk about the science of ADHD and the dynamics of psycho psychopharmacological uh, interventions um, from a scientific standpoint. Uh, you know, it's worth saying that, uh, and this gets back to the broader crisis of teacherly authority, it's worth saying that there has been a massive tendency for bias within uh, ADHD research. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to get into a broader conversation about, you know, how pharmaceutical companies run <laughs> and the nature of direct-to-consumer advertisements and, uh, you know, the nature of um, where publications that go through certain journals come from, but we know those stories and how they play out. And it's not conspiracy. It's actually uh, just, I think, uh, easily findable knowledge. So, but what I'm going to speak about is the kind of difference between the raising of children and the designing of children. And this actually brings together a bunch of the themes we've been talking about. So I'm going to try to kind of do this uh, justice in the in the five or so minutes I have left. So the basic idea is that legitimate, authentic teacherly authority, as I've described it, is a process of raising a child into their unique self, right? It's a, it's a process of collaborative intent, non-strategic interaction, where the interest of the child and the interest of the adult align, that there's a shared educational goal between them, which matters to both of them. And good parenting, you can feel it when you see it in the interaction between the parent and the child, that the learning and development that's taking place in that relationship is not being imposed upon the child. It's not being done to the child. It's being done for and with the child. So that's raising children, right? But since Skinner, basically, <laughs> uh, and then of course, when you get at into the like decade of uh, biomedical science and then the human genome projects and other things, there's been this notion that we could actually design children. And I'm not kind of saying like, this is some science fiction scenario. I'm saying this is actually a particular way of relating to children intergenerationally, where you do an end around the normal dynamics of teacherly authority and directly strategically intervene into the biological substrate of the child in the interest of perpetuating one view, which is the view of the older generation, right? And so Habermas, Jürgen Habermas, great German social philosopher, writes about this in a book called The Future of Human Nature. And he talks about it. He's basically saying like, you know, most of intergenerational transmission and most of the way civilization has evolved has been on the organic life world, communicatively rich intergenerational transmission where you're negotiating and sharing joint attention 
working with, working for. But we're approaching the potential for an asymmetric unilateral strategic intervention into the biological substrate of the up and coming generation, which would actually short circuit the ability to work with and work for and only be working on. Right. And so reframing academic difficulties and struggles as medical problems transfers the locus of intervention from the cultural dynamics and communicative and interpersonal dynamics of teacherly authority to the biomedical dynamics of strategic intervention. And so basically kind of like regardless of if these things actually work, and by the way, it's not like open question, um, it's a longer conversation. There's this question of what's the right way to actually frame intergenerational relationships? Is it one where we work with them and for them? for the needs and ends that they have in which we help them shape together collaboratively, or is intergenerational transmission strategic? They're going to do what we want them to do, even if we have to drug them, right? And so you have to step back in any context where someone's struggling in academic context and look at the dynamics of teacherly authority first. Is there shared learning goals? Is there shared understanding of context and motivation? Is there enough communication and transparency where both parties know that the interests of the younger person are being kind of basically understood? Or is it a dynamic of teacherly authority where the kid actually has no idea why this matters, except that he'll get punished or he won't advance if he doesn't do well? He doesn't actually um, share the goal of the teacher with what he wants to be doing with his time. Right? So the teacher wants him to be studying this thing he doesn't understand. He wants to be talking to his friend, and you actually haven't given him a good reason of why he shouldn't, except some conventional reason that you need to work hard in school. Right? So for as long as the school system is actually demonstrably irrational to the perceptions of the child, uh, then it's very hard to talk about anything like a disease entity of attention deficit disorder. You actually need to give him a reason to pay attention. Uh, and that means you need to create enough context of legitimate teacherly authority where it where it is felt to matter in an embodied sense. Uh, so instead of that equation being run, where we start to look at the culture of schools and we start to look at the dynamics of teacherly authority and you know the psychologies of adolescence and the dynamics of uh, you know the unrest that occurs when the perception of bullshit work sets in. We're not looking at that. What we're doing instead is claiming that the kid has a genetically predetermined biological dysfunction in his nervous system that's akin to a disease entity that needs to be treated with biomedical intervention for the rest of his life, right? What was happening was that school wasn't working for him. But what ends up getting the understanding Right. What's understood by the family, the kid, et cetera, is that this kid's nervous system is basically broken. And I've had people tell me that kids need ADHD medication like diabetics need insulin. Right. And this is a completely erroneous view, but it is held. And there's been some research into like the self conceptions of kids who've been medicated on ADHD medication. And they buy this, they believe that their nervous systems are broken, that they were genetically disadvantaged. And so 
that right there is an example of why the postmodernists <laughs> took over the ed schools. Um, because you had a team of, you know, you have this kind of like strange symbiosis between kind of like medical experts and pharmaceutical companies and school administrators and other things happening that are, you know, radically stigmatizing and uh, running interference on reasonable self-conceptions in adolescence and uh, turning what is actually a political and cultural problem into a medical problem. And uh, so that's just endemic and actually it expands beyond just academic struggles into you know a lot of the terrain that is constituted by psychopharmacology in general. Um, the depolitization of deviance and the medicalization, therefore, of deviance is a really sticky wicket. And so we're going way far down that line. And when you hear, you know, people from the Blue Church and the and the East and the West Coast and the New York Times readers uh, talking about how the Trump supporters are actually insane and should be medicated and things of that nature, and you end up realizing that, you know, the same slope that we set down on when we medicalized academic underperformance, we can actually expand that and go down an even slipperier slope and start trying to medicalize any view we disagree with in any lifestyle that doesn't make sense to us. Um, so we need to much more carefully disentangle the way we look at cultural and social problems in our institutions. And the knee-jerk reaction to biomedical intervention in the schools for academic struggles and the diagnostic creep and the, just the sheer numbers of kids getting put on these drugs, it's an experiment. Of, of a massive scope because we, we actually don't know enough about the long-term effects. And uh, again, it feels like generational warfare to me where instead of raising these kids, right, and actually grappling with the problems that they have and grappling with the institutions that are not working for them and the future job markets that are not there and the meaning crisis that has been created around them, instead of grappling with all that, we're just going to make them do it. Yeah, brute force. It reminds me a little bit of Thomas Zaz's critique of the psychiatric movement of the 50s and 60s, which basically housed oh, yeah. a million people in insane asylums, right? And he pointed out, wait a minute, we may have this backwards, right? This may be an indictment of our society. I strongly believe that about this medicalization, pharmacologicalization of school. I mean, that ought to be a screaming sign. There's something seriously wrong with schools, right? And particularly that it's gender very unequal. Was it 15% of boys and maybe 2% of girls or right. something are on these things? Right. But if you if you expand it beyond ADHD medication, you realize that the, the girls are just on different meds for anxiety and yeah, they're on antidepressants and things like that sort. Yeah. But but I would also say that, hey, you know, being a guy who liked to dabble in his drugs and his misspent youth, speed works, motherfucker, right? <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it for very long term. I mean, the idea of doing Adderall for 15 years, what the fuck, right? But, you know, doing a few lines of crystal, go out and party, hell yeah, right? Well, that's worth understanding is that these are class two substances. Like, this is basically speed. And, you know, Ritalin, Ritalin and Adderall have surpassed alcohol and marijuana as uh, substances abused on college campuses. And, and so, yeah, it is worth people knowing that actually this is just speed. What's interesting is that in the army, you know, the Nazis were actually the first ones to weaponize amphetamine 
Yeah, Benzedrine. How could those some bitches march like that? Benzedrine. So that's where it starts. And of course, the IQ testing also starts with the Nazis. Um, people don't realize it. Uh, but so then the Americans emulate that in the military with the IQ testing and, these, and the amphetamines. And then they bring both the amphetamines and the IQ testing into the schools. And then people also forget the Nazis got their ideas of eugenics from the right. Americans. Yeah, totally. Margaret Sanger, those people, they were like big time eugenicists of a homicidal variety. It was really not pretty. Exactly. One last thing here, and then I think we'll wrap up. Again, and this issue that these problems seem to be infecting boys more than girls strikes me as real. And it resonates with one of my very favorite books from David Graeber called Utopia of Rules, where the you know late game A, everything becomes a fucking rule, right? You know, nobody has discretion about anything anymore. Everything is black and white and highly bureaucratized. And I believe that that has had a gigantic negative impact of the experience of boys, particularly in schools. And I, again, I'll you know, use my own life as an example. Fortunately, prior to all this horseshit, you know, for instance, we started carrying knives. I think when I was in third grade, I had a Cub Scout knife. I always had in my pocket. And by the time you got to junior high school, I had a really cool knife that an electrician friend of my father's gave me. It was beautifully made case knife. And then in high school, by senior year, a significant percentage of the boys considered a standard part of manly dress was a folding buck knife, big old buck hunter on your belt with a leather scabbard. Can you imagine if half the boys in a public high school showed up with buck knives on their belts? They'd call out the fucking National Guard. They wouldn't even bother calling the police, right? Another one of my pet peeves is no fighting, right? Yes, fighting was against the rules when we were kids. And depending on the context, you know, worst case, you might get three days suspension, but, you know, more likely you get five days after school, one hour detention or something like that. But, you know, adolescent boys spar, you know, look at the equivalent of any kind of primate or frankly, a lot of mammals. Sparring amongst adolescent boys is part of life. And the idea we're going to have no fighting, zero tolerance, we're going to call the fucking police. What kind of hell bullshit is that? Finally, this might even be the worst of them. And these are all bad, in my opinion, for boys. But the reduction in the amount of recess in elementary school. You know, boys are high energy. They're fidgety. And again, they want to establish boy kingdoms, right? And, you know, I will honestly say I believe I learned more in recess in elementary school than I did in the classroom. And particularly the stuff that was most useful in my business career. You know, how to organize, you know, what is culture even, right? What are real friends for? And so this utopia of rules and everything being, you know, teach to the test, no recess, because we might put our standardized test points scores up by 1%, strikes me as all being very disadvantageous to an honest and normal boyhood. Hmm. Yeah, no, I obviously completely agree that the disappearance of recess and spaces for relatively unsupervised play during grade school is actually a very serious problem from the perspective of moral development. And there's a lot to say there, but if kids don't have the freedom to creatively resolve their own interpersonal problems without adult intervention, then they never actually get to exercise the muscles that are necessary, the kind of cognitive muscles that are necessary to later in life be autonomous moral reasoners. So it's it's both the physical activity of recess that's important. I completely agree. <laughs> like, please don't put kids on ADHD meds, you know, like give them freaking recess, like just like a no-brainer and also their diet and a whole bunch of sleep and other things that 
that factor there. But even deeper than that, I think, is the absence of the freedom and spaces for, as you said, children to create culture without adult supervision. And this is, again, the raising versus designing thing. The desire to control every aspect of the young child's life uh, tends towards design, whereas the ability to create safe contexts in which kids can be free to explore what spontaneously arises in their native kind of like child cultures, that's what raising a kid is. If you truly love something, right, you set it free. There's something that is passive aggressive and neurotically controlling in the way that we're, you know, limiting the freedoms of, of children. And, you know, the Utopian of Rules book, the Utopia of Rules book by Graeber, that book was a revelation to me um, because he was articulating things that I'd been seeing in my studies of standardized testing and bureaucratization processes within school systems. And understand a lot of this is also legal. A lot of this has to do with the kind of like the litigiousness of society that it's, it's not even that they care about the kids <laughs> it's that they don't want to get sued. Exactly. And so you have to look again, it's not just that the rules in the schools are changing. It's that the ecosystem of legal precedents around the school has shifted so that schools are extremely vulnerable and the behaviors of children are not outside of the kind of litigious calculus of um, adult authority figures. So there's a you know, there's a complex set of things that has basically fenced in the youth. And again, back to the generational warfare, it's not a coincidence um, that the boomers in particular would be like, hey, remember all that freedom that we had when we were kids to like work together as adolescents to throw to overthrow the adults? <laughs> Let's not have that happen again. Let's make it so that there is no chance for these kids to become sovereign agents and that they are designed by us more or less to perpetuate the economic system that we created, which advantages us and systematically disadvantages them. And that begins with taking away recess and taking the spirit out of the boys who would otherwise have been leaders of men. Yeah, don't let them fight. I mean, if you want to turn guys into capons, don't let them fight when they're 14 years old. Right. And oh, if you want school shooters, that's another nice way to do it, right? Well, I think we've covered some amazing ground here. This has been one of the most interesting conversations I've had on the Jim Rutt Show. And I really want to thank you for the depth in which we went into and the very excellent back and forth. And I look really forward to picking up on the second half of my topic lists and doing this again in about a month. Sounds good, Jim. This has been a blast. I appreciate your hosting. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.